Hello, and thanks for joining this lawcast from the CMS Pensions Law Team. I'm Joanna Clark, and I'm joined by my colleagues Alexandra Tomkinson and Kirsten Thompson as we continue our series on the Pension Schemes Act 2021. The Act was given royal assent back in February, with many of the provisions coming to force at the start of October. Alex is going to begin by recapping what changes have happened so far, and Kirsten will then be looking ahead to what we, we consider we're still expecting to see. I'm going to finish up with a look at the revised clearance guidance. Thanks, Joe. So I'm going to talk about four key areas of change that are now in force under the Act. Firstly, the Act has introduced five new criminal offences, four of which can result in imprisonment. Firstly, there's avoidance of employer debt. And secondly, conduct of risking accrued scheme benefits. Both of these offences carry unlimited fines or up to seven years imprisonment or both. These are the criminal offences that have had the most attention in the pensions press. There are three further offences. The first is failure to comply with a contribution notice, and that carries an unlimited fine. Then there's providing false or misleading information to the regulator in relation to either a funding strategy statement or a notifiable event. And both of those offences carry a fine of up to £1 million up to two years imprisonment, or both. These offences apply to acts and failures after the 1st of October 2021. When the Act was first introduced um, in draft, there were worries that this might be applying to re retrospectively. It's been confirmed that this is not retrospective and applies only to acts and failures to act after the 1st of October 2021. The regulator will also be able to impose a civil penalty of up to a million pounds on individuals who are party to such acts, including those who knowingly assist in the act. This is important and broadens the scope of parties potentially in the frame. The next uh, new area under the act is the new contribution notice powers for the regulator. There are two new grounds for the regulator to issue a contribution notice. This is the employer insolvency test and the employer resources test. And you can read more about these tests in the CMS Guide to the Pension Schemes Act available on our website. There's also new sanctions for failing to comply with the contribution notice. The Act has broadened out the matters which the regulator might take into account when consider considering the reasonableness of imposing a contribution notice. And there has been a change to the relevant time for calculating the amount due under a contribution notice. Vigilance is required by trustees in case of any activity which weakens the employer covenant. The third area for change is the extension of the regulator's information gathering powers. These now inc include power for the pensions regulator to require individuals to attend an interview. The regulator can now inspect premises and the regulator has new powers to impose fixed and escalating civil penalties for non-compliance with these information gathering powers. We discussed these information gathering powers in depth in our previous Lawcast episode, number 31, on information sharing. The final area of change I'm going to talk about is the climate change reporting requirements for the biggest schemes. This is schemes 5 billion plus in assets, authorised master trusts, and CDC schemes. The new provisions under the Act, applying from the 1st of October this year, 
require schemes to manage the effects of climate change as a financial risk and report on how they have done so in line with the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure Recommendations. Even those schemes that are not big enough to be subject to the mandatory reporting are now strongly encouraged by the Pensions Climate Risk Industry Group guidance to adopt robust governance procedures relating to climate risk and later move to reporting. This is in anticipation of the requirements applying to all schemes by 2025. We discussed detail around the Pensions Climate Risk Industry Group guidance in our previous lawcast episode number 21 on ESG. If this is of interest to you, you can go back and take a listen or watch that episode. I'm now going to hand over to Kirsten to talk about other areas that will be coming into force under the Act. Thanks very much, Alex. Now that Alex has brought us up to date, in this section we will look at the future developments we are expecting from the Pension Schemes Act. There are still a number of parts of the Act that are not yet in force, so there's plenty to look forward to. I will take you through what is coming up and what we know about expected timescales for those remaining items to come into force. One area that has been a big focus for defined benefit schemes is scheme funding. The Pension Schemes Act provides for a shift towards focusing on long-term funding and will introduce new review and reporting requirements with criminal sanctions attached. One of the new requirements is that trustees need to identify a long-term aim and exit strategy for their scheme. Are they expecting to buy out benefits with an insurer, enter a consolidator vehicle, or perhaps to continue paying benefits from the scheme long-term? This will be another question within the scheme's integrated risk management matrix. So trustees will need to consider factors like employer covenant when making this decision. The Pension Schemes Act sets out the new DB funding framework, but detail will be contained in regulations and in the Pensions Regulator's new code of practice on DB funding. The current estimate, estimate for this updated regime to be in place is late 2022, but there will be further consultations on the new requirements before they come into force. The Pensions Regulator has confirmed that schemes going through their actuarial evaluation process now are covered by the existing requirements and need not attempt to anticipate the new regime. Pension dashboards have received a lot of focus over the past few years. In brief, these will be digital platforms that allow individuals to see their pension savings from different arrangements in one place. The Pension Schemes Act sets out the framework for the provision of pensions, pensions dashboards along with an enforcement regime that will require pension schemes to share information with the dashboard providers. In this area, the longer time frame for implementation is driven by the technological requirements of setting up the new platforms and ensuring that they can interface with the administration systems already in place for individual schemes. It is proposed that there will be one publicly owned dashboard service run by the existing Money and Pension Service, or MAPS, but that commercial providers will also be able to offer alternatives. The current hope is that testing will continue through 2022, with the first dashboard available to individual savers from 2023. The requirements for pension schemes to provide information will be staggered, from the largest schemes to the smallest, following the model that schemes will already be familiar with from the introduction of auto-enrolment. It is not expected that this will start until late 2022 or into 2023. 
Another area covered by the Pension Schemes Act where provisions are not yet in force is collective defined contribution. The Act creates a framework that will allow collective DC schemes, also referred to as CDC schemes, to operate in an attempt to bridge some of the gap for members between the guaranteed income that was provided by traditional defined benefit schemes and the income risk that they bear under defined contribution models. The CDC structure will allow members to target a defined benefit and manage risk by pulling assets and liabilities, but avoids placing the funding risk on employers. While CDC schemes have been talked about for many years, the idea is now being taken forward by what is effectively a pilot scheme. Royal Mail Group, working with the Communication Workers Union and relevant government counterparties, has developed the detail underlying the framework and is, and is now in consultation over the planned launch of its CDC scheme in 2022. Their progress is being followed by many in the industry and it will be interesting to see if others follow down the CDC route. Finally in this section, something that has generated a lot of interest amongst our clients is the plan to modify some of the requirements that must be complied with when members wish to take a cash equivalent transfer value of their benefits to another scheme. The pensions regulator remains concerned about the risk of pension scams and members losing their pension savings. The proposals under the new Pension Schemes Act provisions in this area would increase the number of checks performed by trust transferring trustees introducing more due diligence and trustee evaluation into the process. A consultation document launched in May of this year generated significant feedback from trustees and others in the industry who were concerned about a number of aspects of the proposals, including the additional administrative burden. It was expected that by the end of October this year, we would have further information on this issue following consideration by DWP of the consultation responses, but this has not yet been issued. I'll hand over to Joe now to talk about clearance applications. So at the end of September and along with six other documents relating to the new powers, TPR published its updated clearance guidance. The guidance was last revised in March 2010, so some time ago now, and TPR had indicated prior to issue that the update would not include substantive changes. Well, substantive or not, and there are some changes to note, in light of the new contribution notice powers in particular, Many in the industry suspect that clearance applications will become again much more common, uh, having dropped to a mere handful in recent years from the high watermark of over 200. So it's against this backdrop that it's worth recapping what the guidance tells us and noting some of the changes in the revised version. Well, just as a reminder, the clearance process was originally introduced to help us deal with industry concerns about the potential reach of TPR's moral hazard powers. It's a voluntary process for employers the basic concept being that if clearance is applied for and granted, the applicant has comfort that TPR won't use its moral hazard powers in respect of the particular event in question. The revised guidance makes clear that this assurance will only extend to TPR not using its powers in respect of issuing a contribution notice or a financial support direction. Clearance will give no assurance in respect of any other TPR powers and TPR flags uh, a few times actually in the guidance that it may use information provided to it via a clearance application in other contexts, such as when looking at its enforcement powers and criminal prosecutions. Getting into the detail, the guidance is always focused on the concept of a type A event and TPR only expects to be approached and to issue clearance in respect to an event which is type A. 
Type A events are those which are materially detrimental to the ability of a scheme to meet its pensions liabilities, and it may either be an employer-related event or a scheme-related event. An employer-related event is one which affects the employer's covenants. To assess whether an employer-related event is type A, you need to compare the employer covenant pre and post event and assess whether there is any weakening of the covenant and if it's to such a degree that it is materially detrimental to the ability of the scheme to meet its liabilities. Under the old guidance, it was also necessary for there to be a relevant deficit in the scheme, but this threshold has been removed in the updated guidance. So it's essentially just a question of the impact of the event on the covenant supporting the scheme. The guidance also continues to give some examples of employer-related events that might be type A. These include a change in priority as regards security given to creditors, a change to the employer in relation to the scheme, and also a return of capital, such as a dividend payment. The revised guidance includes some new examples too, uh, an increase in debt or a reallocation of debt. Uh, there might be a, a change to the strength of a, a company supporting the scheme, um, one which has legal obligations on a contingent basis, such as a guarantor. Or there might be a change to an employer's parent or ultimate holding company. What we're seeing here then is a broader emphasis on events which impact the wider corporate group. A scheme-related event is one which affects the scope of employers' legal obligations to the scheme. Scheme events that might be type A include a compromise agreement, an apportionment arrangement, or any arrangement that would prevent a Section 75 debt from becoming due. Previously, the guidance suggested that a regulated apportionment arrangement could be a type A event, but this has now been amended and the new guidance states that RAAs will always be type A events and TPR expects applicants looking to approve an RAA to seek clearance. The guidance also sets out how employers and trustees should approach mitigation where there's a type A event. The old language about trustees adopting the approach of a bank with a large unsecured loan is removed and instead we're told that trustees must act in accordance with their fiduciary duties to members and employers should take careful account of their obligation to fund scheme benefits. As previously, some examples of possible mitigations are given, and there's some new commentary here as well. There's a new example added, uh, so this is that getting a new statutory employer for a scheme could be appropriate mitigation for a, a type A event, as this would be a way of bolstering covenant. We're also told that negative pledges, which used to be an example given of, of acceptable mitigation, are unlikely on their own to represent an adequate mitigation, although they may be of value as part of a wider package of measures. The guidance also notes that information sharing about the employer's financial circumstances can be useful, but the TPR will not regard information rights on their own as mitigation. Finally, the guidance also looks at the type of actions that applicants and trustees should take before and during an application process, and includes information about the actual process for applying for clearance. In this context, there's a note that TPR's experience is that applications proceed more efficiently where potential applicants and the trustees have engaged with TPR ahead of submitting a signed application. So what do we get from the new guidance? Well, whilst there's no wholesale changes, it's certainly been sensible to update it. Uh, and there's some interesting pieces added, such as that stronger steer to engage with TPR before final documents are submitted. Overall, the guidance is quite a bit shorter and for my money, it's easier to follow. It's definitely something that should be looked at if you're looking at moral hazard risk. Well, thanks for listening. And um, before I go, I will just mention uh, the CMS Guide to the Pension Schemes Act. This is our online resource available on our website 
covering all the new changes made by the Pension Schemes Act. We're keeping it updated regularly, so please do look at it as and when you need to. Thank you.